Hi there. Thanks for stopping by. A couple of brief announcements before I start yabbering on about today's topic. Uh, the in-person gatherings are the first Tuesday of every month, so the next one will be the first Tuesday in December. I have no idea what date that is. And um, if you're in New York, please stop by. It's in Williamsburg, and the information will be on the website, Dharma Punks with an X, NYC.com. And uh, finally, everything I do as a Buddhist pastor is entirely by donation, supported by Venmo, Dharma Punks with an X, NYC, and PayPal. The link's on the website, and there's a Patreon link. If you feel like supporting a Buddhist pastor, uh, just know that I'm very grateful for that. Tonight, I put together a talk based on reflections from the various different social psychologists and social neuroscientists that I've liked reading over the years, like the wonderful Louis Casalino, John T. Cacioppo, Barbara Fredrickson, Dan Siegel, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Albert Bandura, who's a giant in the field, Sandra Lubomorsky, Alan Shore, Matthew Lieberman, who wrote the wonderful book Social. Tonight's talk is just one of many directions that I could take all of these influences and I hope that something in it will be of value. And then once we complete the talk, then I'll lead a meditation that's primarily geared to down regulating our nervous system, but also we'll have an opportunity to explore a theme from the talk, and then we'll have time for questions. Throughout our ancestral history, secure bonds were vital for our survival, we're a species that survives due to our social bonds. It starts in childhood where we need to connect with caregivers who understand the needs that we're signaling through our cries and gestures. If we are to survive, we're born prematurely in the sense of being in any way capable of surviving on our own, that's a process that takes decades. So to survive, we need to establish some pretty robust relationships that thrive. And of course, through almost the entirety of human history, being kicked out of a clan led to annihilation because you would either starve to death without support or be killed by predators or rival clans. So concerns about our social status are, as the saying goes, hardwired into the brain. If you'd like to read a wonderful book, I mentioned Matthew Lieberman's Social, which sort of goes over the entire science of of social neuroscience in a very readable way and just how much the brain is set up to monitor uh, the strength of our social affiliations. There's a region called the anterior, dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, which is entirely responsible or one of the hubs. So to be sure, bonding was easier for our ancestors because they interacted almost entirely with members of the same village. Uh, you didn't encounter people from outside of your tribe or village for most of our ancestral history. So if you met people whose lives were cut from the same cloth, they, like you, were hunter-gatherers or farmers walking the, working the land or fishermen or merchants, then you would immediately have an understanding of those people's needs, goals, internal states, the challenges they faced. So building up bonds from people who come from the exact same context is far easier. But today, 
we interact with individuals from many different cultures, ethnicities, beliefs. In New York, uh, there's literally, without exaggeration, dozens of different languages I hear every day just walking, which is great, walking to the store. People are move here from uh, regions far and wide, and it requires far more curiosity, even if you don't live in New York or Brooklyn, as I do. It requires a lot more patience, curiosity, and effort to get to know others meaningfully if they're if they derive from backgrounds that are quite dissimilar to yours or mine. Um, so it takes effort. And uh, certainly in a capitalist environment where we're all set to, uh, we all know that we have to be primarily responsible for our own well-being, that there's not much of a social safety net, uh, the time and effort it takes to taking the risk of getting to know someone uh, becomes significantly harder. This is because uh, most of us manage our social bonds via what's called impression management. And that's from, uh, I can't remember the uh, who wrote the book, uh, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. It's going to come to me. Um, but um, we all, when we interact with people, especially early on, we edit what we say, how we act, what we disclose to try to create likable, confident uh, presentation of who we are. This entails monitoring and editing our thoughts and the feelings and the experiences from our past that we disclose. And again, this is because we're all burdened with the evolutionarily outdated, we're in a mismatch in the sense that we live in the same brains that we're wired to be very concerned by what other people think about us because in our past, if they didn't like us, we could be expunged from our tribe and that would lead to death. Well, today it doesn't, but we still have that wiring and those innate behavioral inclinations to worry about what other people think about us. So getting to know people entails risk in the early station in the early stages of relationships whether where it's romantic relationships work friendships there are feelings needs behaviors that we may not reveal to protect ourselves from the possibility of judgment shame incomprehension we kind of put on what some refer to as a mask of normality so we conceal, for example, many people I know conceal their sobriety or their finances or their sexuality or their health or their views, especially if they have unpopular views or religious backgrounds or mental health issues and challenges and so forth. So this strategy of not disclosing makes us feel safe, but Self-camouflage over time leads to feelings of shame and isolation. And brains do very poorly withholding uh, authentic uh, experiences and feelings that are associated with their sense of self. The more we withhold, the more there'll be, or the greater there'll be an incongruity between uh, what we say and how and the facial expressions that we exhibit and that will hamper the trust other people feel for us because they can tell that there's something that's not being uh disclosed and there's a whole bulk of of clinical psychology that shows the cost of not disclosing and and concealing parts of self. Uh, Anita Kelly, I think was her name at Notre Dame, found that concealing leads to anxiety and depression. And Pennebaker, University of Texas, 
showed immune reduced immune function and hypertension. And there was a a large meta-analysis of seven studies with 13,000 people that, as I recall, showed decreased feelings of well-being and life satisfaction. So it paints a rather dire picture of overly editing ourselves. Being understood, to be sure, is one of the core foundations of secure attachment. The others are reliable proximity, someone who's soothing and someone who delights, expresses delights in us. But the feeling of being empathetically understood is one of the four cornerstones of what transmits a secure base throughout the entirety of our life. We don't ever lose that need to feel understood by others. Feeling known regulates the autonomic nervous system, and John Cacioppo showed it leads to decreased mortality risk. I've read that medical treatments have better outcomes when patients feel their doctors understand them and listen to their, especially understand their pain, listens to their concerns. And people work harder for supervisors who take the time to understand them, get to know them. And, of course, uh, people vote for politicians who convey a sense, even an illusion, that they're understood. I I think that's probably one of the reasons why, sadly, Trump uh, won the election over Clinton, because he conveyed to people a, a totally phony sense that he understood their hardships, whereas Hillary unfortunately came across as more policy-oriented and not like she was uh, aware of people's distress. Anyway, being liked won't resonate if we don't feel People really know us. I, as a Buddhist pastor, have so many wonderful experiences and letters and messages. And people sometimes come up to me and tell me how much they admire my work or my podcast. And while, of course, that's enjoyable, but it doesn't land in any way similarly to the way it does when somebody really knows me gives me a compliment Because when somebody who doesn't know you gives you a compliment, there is always this lingering feeling that their impression is entirely based on a projection of who they think you are, because you know they don't really know much about your actual day-to-day life or your feelings or needs or backgrounds. And certainly one of the most frustrating experiences after a romantic or peer rejection is that sense that 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 experience in adolescent and early adulthood when our parents do something that shows that they really don't understand us at all where we receive gifts that reveal they're clueless to what matters to us my Mom, who I had a wonderful relationship with, but I would always be dismayed with the uh, the uh, the Christmas gift would always be uh, a turtleneck sweater or a tie or something that I've never worn in my entire life. And it kind of created the sense that she wanted a far more uh, at times or had an image of me as being uh far more i don't know preppy or whatever than i in any way was to be sure it's vital to feel understand understood in so many different ways and conflicts even when issues between couples or friends and aren't in any way resolved Emotions begin to downregulate when individuals feel heard and understood. In fact, I can tell you from doing some 
couples therapy. It's not my the dominant counseling that I work, but once in a while, uh, couples will uh, really ask. And I'll, if I have time, I'll meet with them. And what's very clear to me is that you can resolve issues between people, but if they don't feel understood, if they don't really feel heard, then none of the tension or conflict will be alleviated. On the other hand, if somebody comes to me and asks for something that they uh, that they want and I can't do it, like I can't make a time to see them because I'm overbooked or whatever, but I acknowledge, I understand why they're asking and I acknowledge that I... Um, or if they're asking for something else, I acknowledge, I get it, why they're making the request, then people really generally aren't that disappointed. It's only when people respond to requests or needs and the response they get is incomprehension or judgment or somebody telling them why they shouldn't ask for that. So, um, yeah, with couples... I may not always agree with my wife, but or she with me, but so long as we take the time to in some way indicate we understand why the other per this is important to the other person and what experiences has in some way led to this request, then even if we can't meet the request, or even if we can't uh, even if we still disagree with it, the tension and the conflict is diminished. So there are many obstacles to knowing and being known by others. One of the most common is the belief that our romantic partners should, or roommates, or neighbors, should know what we need without being told. It's a terrible expectation that leads to so much frustration and tension in relationships. Everybody's needs are different. And unless we convey our needs, you know, somebody might need, um, at the beginning of a relationship, somebody might need to see their partner twice a week. Somebody else might need to see their partner four times a week or every other week. But the idea that there's a correct need that uh, that we have and that other people should know it uh, leads to this constant sense that we are being let down by others. So to be known requires, and this is pe- this is difficult for people of more anxious uh, attachment systems, but to be known requires actually taking the time to express and convey our needs clearly. And of course, many people struggle with that because expressing needs openly opens us up to the vulnerable possibility of somebody saying no, but we're sure to be disappointed if we don't state our needs. That's kind of obvious, but I thought I'd raise that point. Another thing that hinders Knowing others and being known is the illusion of transparency. What is the illusion of transparency? Well, we tend to overestimate the degree to which our internal states are known by other people. Even when we don't take the time to tell them how we're feeling, we kind of believe that other people can see how we're feeling or should be able to see. It was a constant misperception of me in college because, you know, I uh, I was very socially awkward and anxious, terrified, and drank a lot, and, you know, was in punk bands. But people mistook the expression of social anxiety and overwhelm for a sense that I was angry and aloof, and I kept meeting people who, who who thought that I was sitting around judging and dismissing people when in fact I was just so 
uh, overwhelmed by that in my freshman year that and sophomore year that experience over time couples begin to know to feel they know each other so well they begin to believe they know what their partner's issues are and how their partners should go about fixing themselves and how they should get a, a better job or lose weight or exercise or go into therapy. And this really gets in the way of really knowing. Uh, this obstacle is known as the belief uh, in that personality is responsible for other people's behaviors. And what does that mean? The belief that personality is responsible for other people's behaviors. Well, we tend to assume that we can know people that our mother or father or sister or brother or our partner or our boss is always going to act in a consistent way. And but even in different situations and contexts, even over time, uh, that that behavior isn't so much driven by situations, but are dri driven by people's essences. And that's the, in psychology, that's known as the fundamental attribution error, that we tend to believe that other people have this core essence that they're always acting out of and that they don't, they're not capable of change or variance from one context to another. In Buddhism, this is known as the myth of Atta, the sense that there's a concrete underlying person, innate personality or self that doesn't change. Uh, but that's completely actually impossible. The brain, one, has many different circuits. Uh, there is no um underlying neural substrate for self there's constant different circuits and regions and different processes in each and every situation and the way we act is very mutable depending upon the context how we react in situations depends on whether we it's known as neurocept unconsciously come to the conclusion that we're around people that appreciate us or are judging us or don't even notice us. And those, those uh, perceptions lead to very fast behaviors that completely change how we act and how we deal with certain situations. Nobody, no matter how difficult, ornery, easygoing, uh, saintly or fiendish ever acts consistently in the way we've seen. We're, um, when we're dealing with people, be they partners, friends, um, colleagues, uh, believing we know how they'll act gives us permission to stop paying attention. It gives us permission to stop listening. It gives us permission to stop asking questions about how they're doing. It gives us permission to stop discerning how they're changing and growing. There's nothing, even though couples tend to many times tend to be say to me proudly, we know each other so well, we finish each other's sentences, but that's actually not a good thing. Because if you finish your partner's sentence, you're basically saying to them, I know what you're going to say, and I'm not interested in giving you the time to actually say it. So resolving conflicts rests upon dropping the belief that we really, really know each other and constantly having that curiosity and that openness and that inquisitiveness and even if your beliefs are often accurate about how somebody, your roommate or your work colleague or your your father or your sibling will act, it simply over time leads to 
uh, estrangement and distance if we stop really paying attention and at least sometimes not preparing what we're going to say while they talk. When we stop planning how to respond or wishing the conversation would end or interrupting, uh, that's when true knowing and being known happens. And as an aside, this is one of many, many reasons why I do not engage in text-based communication, because it's frankly worthless. So much of human communication is based on nonverbal cues and if you are to know someone or even have your internal states known, the only way to do it is either in person or by jumping on, um, you know, a FaceTime or Google Meet or something where you can actually have your vocal tone, your facial expressions, your uh, affect, your body dispositions and gestures seen. So, um, being the, it's interesting. I read uh, something by Harry Bryce, a paper on, uh, perceived partner responsiveness. And it turns out that being understood is actually pretty subjective and that, um, it doesn't really matter if we're always understood. It really matters if we believe someone is trying. Uh, studies, I believe he mentioned with couples show that they constantly overestimate how much their partners actually know them, but that's okay. It's the sense that someone is trying, uh, the sense that someone is really listening and someone is doing their best to stop and respond to our bids for attention, as Gottman calls it. So this is why in virtually all couples therapies use the mirroring dialogue technique. And that's a technique where, I'm sure you've heard of it, where one person in the couple starts by expressing, expressing their frustrations or their concerns about the relationship. And the partner is not allowed under any circumstances to interrupt. And it's generally requested that the speaker who starts tries to limit it just to one topic and just spends a couple of minutes expressing their frustrations. When they're done, their partner who's been listening repeats back in their own words the most, the gist of what they've heard, um, as well as what they've discerned to be their, their partner's underlying emotional state. And once they're done repeating back the gist of what they've heard and witnessed, like, seems my partner is asking for me to be, to be more available and to also take the time to contribute more to household um, chores. And so that might be an example. And at that point, the original speaker will get a, another shot to say, well, you almost got it, but you left out this part. And then finally, the listener will once again repeat the gist of what they've heard, incorporating the corrections and so finally, once there's under, now there's understanding, then the roles are reversed. And the person who was listening now shares an issue that they have. And what's amazing about this process is that even if you come up with no agreement whatsoever, invariably couples, when they feel heard, their, uh, effectual, uh, uh, state begins to soften, to regulate. And this process works because it instills the core foundations of being understood. It forces us to listen, to really pay attention. We're not allowed, we can't prepare what we're going to say if we have to repeat back what our partner is saying. We have to first really listen because we know we're going to be called upon to 
to essentially um, recompose their statement. So we have to let go of our preconceptions. And all of this is just vital for really being known and really being safe in relationships. So um, I think I'm going to end it there. That's just some reflections about the processes of being known. And I'm sure a lot of that will be familiar to you. But at this point, what we're going to do is do a meditation where first we're going to relax and uh, recover and rejuvenate from today. And then at one point, I'm going to lead maybe a little exercise that addresses the practice of really knowing someone. And then when the meditation is done, then we will go to uh, you, to questions or shares or anything you'd like to uh, comment upon. So with that, find a really comfortable seated position and try not to um, sit uh, on camera unless you really want to be seen meditating you don't want to have any self-consciousness So when you found a nice place to sit and practice, just closing the eyes and take a nice full in-breath. And if uh, a sigh or yawn or long exhalation is available to you, that's really perfect. Just bringing your awareness into the body. Retrieving your attention from either memories, thoughts, or plans about the future, or just scanning the sounds at first, uh, the sense of what's going on around you, and just bring your attention to some place in your body that feels receptive, spacious. It could be behind the eyes, or if you can soften your belly, that's a good place, or any one of multiple contact sensations, legs and butt on chairs or your back if you're lying on a couch or the palms of your hands. And just familiarize yourself with the interiority, the sense of what it feels like to be in a body. Most of us spend our days in what feels like the very topmost portion of our heads, or even sometimes our thoughts can feel like they're kind of floating above our heads. So meditation at first is always a time to just reacquaint ourselves 
with what's going on inside. We tend to spend so little time in what's called interoception, awareness of internal feelings, somatic markers, shifts in the body, And yet it's these feelings arising and passing that signal the vast bulk of the brain's concerns, fears, experiences of safety. And the brain, much of the brain, right hemisphere, Midbrain speaks to us through the body, not through thoughts and ideas. And after all, you're checking back in with the very thing that's keeping you alive. If we were entirely dependent for life on someone external, we would pay a lot of attention to them constantly. But it's your body that's doing that for you. Yet how often can we spend lengthy periods of time not checking in? And when we do check in, we can take the time to relax, alleviate ambient stresses or action potential in muscles that have built up, muscle neurons, I should say, that have built up, the body bracing against too many responsibilities and obligations. So here's a practice where we just inform so much of our brain and mind that everything's okay in this moment. We do that by lengthening the breath, the out-breath, and softening the belly and relaxing the shoulders and opening up the chest and just calmly... taking care of the body that's been taking care of our minds.
So just being aware of the breath, breathing in and out. Trying to settle, relaxing any tension in the body. If it's helpful to receive the sounds surrounding you while keeping much of the attention on your internal state, feelings arising and passing. The breath is an energy moving up and down. In halations, the energy moves up. Exhalation, the energy moves back down. Use any sensation that's occurring right now to provide an anchor to help you for a little while put aside the allure of thoughts. When a thought grabs your attention and whisks you away and you realize that, just come back to any present time sensation in your body, sounds around you. feelings of contact, light flickering behind eyelids, just any sensation that's occurring right now. And just promise the thought that you'll return to it later. If your mind is still a little difficult to tame, just add a phrase to repeat as a way to settle. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. The Buddhist phrase for that is sabe sata suki hantu. Sabe sata suki hantu. 
On the other hand, if you're feeling sleepy, drifting away, you can open up an eye when you breathe, eyelid when you breathe in, close it when you breathe out, and then open the other eyelid with the next breath, and take deeper in-breaths. So at this point, if you'd like to do a contemplative practice based on the talk, I'll give the instructions. But if you'd like to stay just present and relaxing, that's fine as well. So... You're invited to bring to mind someone with whom you've been having some degree of conflict. And of course, that would be anyone you have a resentment with. Anyone that whose actions are being or who the issues are being repeated in your mind. If nobody from your life immediately jumps to mind, that might mean that you're forgetting something. But if uh, nobody in your life jumps to mind, you can always use somebody that's famous or someone that's a politician. But I think it's best to know somebody 
to bring to mind someone that you've actually been having an interaction with that has some degree of tension or conflict or disappointment. And if you can, just bring their image to mind and have them while you listen, just state whatever they've been telling you or urging. No matter how much you disagree with it, just reflect on what they've been saying in a nutshell. summarize it in your mind without any editorial, without any defense. This person is telling me they need or feel or want And then see if you can visualize them in their mind, in your mind as they've might appear or as you've seen them. And see if you can discern what their underlying emotional state is while they've been making or uttering these statements, demands, criticisms, beliefs. What is it they're feeling beneath it? Are they feeling angry, scared, frustrated, disappointed, hurt, lonely? You were to look beneath the facade what would you see? How can we understand, no matter how difficult or disappointing what they're saying is, how can we make sense of it given what we know about this person? Maybe there's something in their background or... If not that, what do you think they really most deeply want?
Hopefully, if you've done this short contemplation, you know now how you would summarize or repeat back what you've been hearing from this person. And even if you decide never to talk about these issues with them or you're currently not connected with this person, that's fine. Just understanding others mitigates some of the disappointment, frustration. But if you do try again to work through any issue, being able to repeat back what they've said without any editorial or response, as well as have a sense of what they're feeling and what they really want, is what really creates the sense of being known. And with that, you're welcome to come back to the screen ending your meditation. I have to note that uh, during the meditation, I actually, uh, because there were some loud street sounds of sirens, I actually turned off my mic and then <laughs> I forgot that I had done that. So I gave a whole instruction while the mic was off. So if that meditation seemed like it was a lot more quiet than normal, it's because I was at one point yammering. Luckily for you, none of that got transmitted. I edited myself, which was no doubt a benefit. <laughs>